0: Today on our Tech for Business podcast, we're joined by Todd, our COO and CISO, and Nate, our Director of Cybersecurity and BCSO. About a month, probably two months by the time this podcast comes out, CIT had our Tech Fair where both of you presented and networked. So, my icebreaker today is what is your favorite part of Tech
1: Fair? Well, everybody is for me. Todd is listening to himself <laughs> talk the entire time. Yes. What could be more fun than that? I think that actually has to be mine because I gave the most number of presentations during the tech fair. So on a serious note, it's actually education back to those in the industries. It was so much fun being able to just communicate. And the, the, the questions that came out of it were phenomenal, you know, and it's stuff that organizations deal with every day, right? We, we have a lot of these answers, But unless you ask them, either we'll just talk about it on a podcast because we just want to continue talking. Uh, But it was fun actually being able to look at people and answer their questions and help trying to drive those business decisions.
2: Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, everybody likes to tell me I like to talk, which I do. Don't get me wrong. Love it. But getting to do it in person makes a difference. So we do a lot of these podcasts and, and the reality is I I get to talk to the group that's on the podcast, but you don't get any real time reaction to it. So you, you're kind of hoping what you put out there means something that makes sense and it's helpful when you're doing it in person. You can see if somebody's with you or not. Right. So it's a, it's a different thing. It's a different conversation, especially if you can do them one-on-one that they're way more enjoyable. Um, it, 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 when there's a big group, I like to crack jokes and try and make people laugh. So I keep them awake. But other than that, the, the best part is just being able to communicate. I think Ariel had had asked me why I got into cybersecurity on a podcast previously. And my answer was, because I get to help people fix problems. And that that's ultimately what's meaningful to me. And I get to do that in person. It's great.
0: Karen, Kelsey, what's your favorite part of the tech fair? Us being, <laughs> we didn't present, but we were definitely there in the background.
3: Yes, we were. We <laughs> were in the background working hard. I would say, you know, really just seeing the people along the lines, what Todd had mentioned. I mean, us on the marketing team, we're sending out the emails and we know that's Todd from CIT. But when you get to see him in person, like you're like, oh my gosh, now I I know who you are. And then we get to have that interaction and talk with them and really make sure that what we're doing from the marketing department is hitting home with them kind of along those education lines. So for me, I love
1: seeing the people. I sorry, quick interjection, Tara. I also completely agree on that. Was we see names associated to companies Mm -hmm. all the time, and we email and communicate all the time, but seeing that face is phenomenal.
3: Hundred percent. I love all the people, people on this podcast. Not saying I'm not a people person, which I feel like Todd's probably gonna be sad out because he's going. "Mm." But I do really enjoy that as it being an in-person event that we get to select cool venues. So this year was at the Hewing Hotel. So it was cool to be able to go and experience it in a space that wasn't just our office or Write a conference room that we were like, this was also a cool, experiential. And then we did have an app this year that we had people gamify, do points. And the photos that they took made my entire day. I think at some point somebody like folded a mini swan and they're like, find the swan. And I was like, you are my type of people. The people are like, this has nothing to do with the conference, but that's my favorite thing. So seeing the little creative, fun moments that came out of people interacting with things. That was probably my favorite part.
0: For sure. I was gonna say that too. I really interacted with people on our app and, and got to communicate with some people and, and saw their name throughout the day. So, which actually brings us to what we're talking about today. We have got some um tech fair attendee questions specifically about our cybersecurity course presentation that Todd and Nate gave. So we had so much interaction with this we are going to have a second part so today we're kind of focusing mostly on kind of mfa and passwords seem to be a lot of the questions but our first one is actually about sentinel one and someone asked about specific examples of sentinel one kind of um, saving a client from that other software didn't stop yeah i don't know if you have examples you'd be comfortable sharing
1: i've I'm gonna do a selfish plug and say, go check out the last uh, episode or two about yep. the respond to the security incidents I had one of my incident response leads uh, actually joined me on that podcast or I joined him, whatever way you want to look at it. But we talked about a lot of different security incidents that we've dealt with. And Sentinel one did come up plenty of times in that. So it, there's there's plenty of endpoint detection or response or EDR solutions. Um, You know, it's obviously I would love to have you be a part of CITs, uh, you know, the environment there, because we do see a broad range of threats and we constantly try to push down new protections on those and manage it. But with that EDR solution, we have seen plenty of threats come through from there. So, for example, uh, I think one of the first customers we ever put on Sentinel-1 was they downloaded a malicious macro and we quickly identified that it was nefarious and it was trojanized, which means, you know, kind of the, the horse coming through the building and then it unlocks uh, kind of the, the chaos. Is it was weaponized to do remote connections outside of the network, introduce ransomware, everything like that. So we were able to stop something like that. We've had cases of. Someone where it didn't quite identify like the initial cause of that. So I'm a little on a mystery of that component, but once someone was on that system, we saw things like downloading Mimi cats, Mimi love. These are all tools dedicated to capture admin credentials and then compromise the rest of the network. It was trying to also download browser credentials. So if you're in the browser saying, save my password for me without using some type of password manager, it's stored in there and it's easily accessible to attackers. So that's another tool that they use. Um, so we can kind of get into the password manager discussion later, you know, foreshadowing. But one of the other things was I really recall that one because we even had the threat actor try and request an uninstall of the tool because they tried downloading tools to rip off the EDR solution. It has a timbre protection, so you can't do that. And then they got stuck after everything was getting blocked. and they said can you please just uninstall this? <laughs> Obviously, we said no, and we isolated the entire device off the network. That's the fun one. Um, I have plenty more examples of just stuff going on, but it's a
2: phenomenal tool. Yeah, I think the the real question is, so backing up a little bit, for those that weren't at the tech fair, essentially that the core's meeting was, there's a couple of things that we feel like you absolutely need to be doing for your cybersecurity. EDR with a bullet, an MFA or one 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 a 1B, one, 1, 2, whatever you want to call it. And so that was kind of where the, the conversation started. And in our opinion, it, it really is a non-negotiable. You need to be doing that, but which I think we've talked about before, but really that's the question, right? Does it work? And the answer is yes, it absolutely does work. We, we aren't just slinging products for the sake of slinging projects. As we mentioned at the very beginning of this, the whole point of this is education. So very valid question, but it, it is one of the few security tools where your expectations are usually exceeded. Uh, You know, a lot of times you're like, well, I hope this is working. And then if you don't get an alert, you're like, well, did it do anything? Did I spend my money wisely? And the answer is yes, you you did. It is the right tool. It is the right solution and it should be doing it. The one thing that I'd add on to what Nate's talking about too is is making sure that it's not just a tool that's plugged in and you're just hoping it works. I still think, in my opinion, you need to have somebody paying attention to what's happening on there because those are some pretty advanced attacks that Nate's referring to, whether it's Mimi Cats or other there's a lot going on. Somebody should be looking at that, validating it. And if you're just waiting for the tool to pop up and go, oh, hey, by the way, I took this device off the network. You probably want to be slightly ahead of that.
1: Yeah. And sorry, last thing. I know that this question was ex- specifically about the examples that we've seen. The one thing that I did want to say is if you don't have it, you're already behind the game. Even the federal government has requested or sorry, not requested mandated this across the entire federal suite of de- devices. If the federal government has already told everyone that this is required to be implemented, they or are some p- of the slowest moving <laughs> components of, you know, our country. I guess you're already behind the game, right? And so we we saw the federal government make those r- requirements. We saw insurance make those requirements. If you're still not on it. You're about two years too late so far. So that's kind of the, the criticality of this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll throw some statistics on that too. So we had a conversation with one of our partners about it and just to kind of give you some insights as to what's going on. And this is kind of getting back to the real world things that are going on there. The adoption rate for CIT customers is roughly about 75%. That's just a real rough number. That To me, that's that's not high enough. I'd like to see it like well into the high 90s, but, but we're doing fairly well. Industry-wide, which is the partner's feedback, as they're saying, it's it's probably closer to 30 or 40%, which they think is incredibly low. And I, I would agree with that. The reason why I said the real-world example is we used to deal with a significant number of security incidents at CIT prior to to being very heavy on the front end of EDR, EDR, EDR. And it has made a significant difference. We, we still deal with them. But the vast majority of issues that we're running into are either not related to a tool set that would tool set like edr would handle or they're ones that don't have it and that that's significantly the major difference when we're not seeing something that an example of something that would be outside of edr you're, you're typically looking at an account takeover or something along those lines
0: so i know on other podcasts we've kind of mentioned the the edr and mfa is that one two punch so kind of move it into that the other part of it we had a couple questions about um mfa specifically and the first one is, is it getting too easy and simple? Um, this person wrote in, users muscle memory and human behaviors by leaving secondary devices unlocked mitigate security measure. What can we do against user error?
2: Or off the computer? Uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, it, real, oh, real briefly, I, I'll expand on it just real briefly. MFA is a tremendous tool set. It works extremely well theres no, There shouldn't be anyway. There shouldn't be any real surprise that threats keep evolving and that they change tactics. So, so once you start to block something, they get a little more clever and they find new ways to attack them. So you are seeing MFA starting to evolve as well. So you're getting into a lot of things that are much harder to break. We can get into Fido2 in a little bit. but But some of the stuff that you're doing is trying to find MFA that's Fishing resistant is the new term. And so, you know, a a great example, when you talked about the muscle memory stuff that we've seen in the past is we've had examples of doing a penetration test in the past. And, you know, the tester tries to log into something, they get stymied by an MFA and they're like, well, what the heck, I'll give it a shot anyway. And they try to push the MFA and just see what happens. And unfortunately, somebody gets a push MFA in their phone and they're like, well, I'm logged in. That's really weird. Yep, I'll accept that. And then the pen tester's like, Cool, I'm in. So, so don't do that. That that muscle memory doesn't make don't sense. Do that. Slow it <laughs> down just a little
1: bit. Yeah, and we see that unfortunately time and time again. Um, you know, this past week, I don't know what it was, but we saw a massive uptick of email compromises. And in most of those cases, it was multi-factor that was already enabled. It was the user just accepting the push, accepting the code or, you know, typing into a fraudulent website, which then passed that login off to someone else. Uh, In the past, we've seen things where someone said, you know, I'm going to make this super secure. I can't log in outside of the office. I'm going to send all the calls to my desk phone so I can only accept it while I'm at work. Then they go hit one or on the number and accept it anyways. Um, If you go take a look at the statistics for any type of compromise in over 90% of cases, it requires some type of human interaction, right? Is the tools, the technology is consistent, and it only does what it's told. People are often unpredictable. Now, they can be great of giving you a heads-up notice of the things like, I'm getting notified a lot for these multi-factor requests. I think something's wrong. And then you can go dig into that. But yes. remote, in my opinion, it's getting too easy. That's why we do see an industry shift to extra validation so you know people are going to listen to this and say this is getting ridiculous but we're moving from two-factor authentication to third-factor authentication so you put in your username you put in your password you put in the you know the the multi-factor code now what we're starting to see microsoft has already started pushing it recently okta has it is after you hit yes this is me It asks you, there's three numbers on the screen. Pick the appropriate one that's on the screen as well. And you have to confirm that number to validate that it is you. So it continues to decrease that risk. I don't love that approach overall. That's where we tend to see things go more passwordless altogether and say, no more passwords. It's tied to a user and a device. And if one of the two don't match up, then grant access. So we've got... Plenty of podcasts already about zero trust and device trust and everything like that. Remote CIT, P- that's the route we're going. Eliminate the password, have the, the death of the password, right? And say, there's a user, there's a device, they have to be matched together. And then you can put additional layers on top on the background, so
2: remote yeah. passwords. Yeah. I, one thing I just wanted to, to, I smirked when, when Nate said, yes, it is getting a little too easy and you're, you're, you're kind of bypassing MFA. It's kind of ironic because again, industry wide, the adoption of MFA is extremely low still. So you're still in that 40% range for adoption. And and yet we're getting to this point where we're, we're trying to mature it. Nate did mention it is a little more inconvenient, which is kind of funny because a lot of people, the ones that haven't implemented is they find mm-hmm. MFA to be inconvenient. Well, that is true, it can be, that's where the push thing kind of removes some of that friction is it, it just pushes in and says, hey, is this really you? And you say yes, well, unfortunately, people are hitting yes when it's not them, which is why you get that additional layer, which hopefully would be a catch and go, whoa, wait a second, I don't have that number on my screen. But it does get rid of that. Ultimately, where I was going with that, it is convenient, is what's more inconvenient, losing access to your email, your credit card information, we can kind of go from there. There is a layer of risk. Certainly understand that. And and to some degree, you're kind of going, well, it's really highly unlikely that it's going to happen to me. Well, it's a lot more likely than if you're going to play the lottery. And I'm guessing a whole bunch of people played the lottery when it was $2 billion. So slow down. Think about your MFA. It is definitely something that should be there. The one other thing that I wanted to throw on there, Nate was kind of alluding to it. Currently, and I want to stress this as is currently because who knows what will end up happening Currently, the only way that most attackers say they can't get into a system is with some sort of physical device or some sort of additional token. Um, And that's kind of where we're seeing the industry going. So most people that are in cybersecurity are aware of who Kevin Mitnick is. And when he did his presentations, he says that's the only thing he can't get past because if you don't have it, you can't get in. So it was a physical token that you had to have in your hand. It wasn't a push. It wasn't anything else. That is inconvenient because now, you know, people are carrying around on their keychains or whatever, but it is extremely robust security as well. And I think that's why we also
1: see a giant shift in the industry focus on this as well is saying, you know, the the username, the password, the multi-factor, the second, third multi-factor, whatever it is, right? It's becoming just too much, Right. And so that's why we see this device trust coming into play is you don't need to make it extremely complicated to say, now we need, you know, a a key that you're carrying around with you or anything like that. We're seeing a fundamental shift across the entire industry. Uh, For those that are technical, it's called FIDO, um, you know, which is, you know, hardware based authentication to websites. So it's not quite... Um, adopted across the entire industry at the moment, but we do see that happening. And so a lot of these websites, we see you set this up on your device, it's trusted, you have maybe some single sign-on across your, all your enterprise organizations, and then it starts tying both that device to that employee. So for the em- employee, it's actually easier to log into to everything, but it increases the security posture of your organization. So that's the really important part is don't just throw hardware on top of the existing problem. It's a fundamental shift over to this approach. All right. That that could be a whole different podcast. I won't go too deep into that. So I was just <laughs> so, thinking so, the same thing. Something I'm very yeah. passionate about, so <laughs> withholding a lot at the moment. You know, so.
0: For sure. I was going to kind of jump into this because somebody asked about geofencing and um, my very limited knowledge <laughs> is that something that you see coming into MFA, do you feel like that's a good idea or is it just another one of these hoops to jump through that's not really worth it?
1: I'll be blunt. it's a band-aid <laughs> to the problem. Um, yeah. <laughs> now there are there are limitations saying you need to retain access to your implement or organizations and access to your systems within geographic boundaries. You know we do mm-hmm. see that across some of the regulations. remote actor has to do is just come vpn into that organization you know we're in the united states there's plenty of vpns all around that you can hop into you just hop in there and then try and log in so it's a band-aid that's where that device trust and the the password list and user trust all start to play into a bigger conversation i was going to add to that but i don't (laughs) i don't think we
2: really need to i think the answer was it was good and clean
0: yeah. So the next couple of questions are about passwords. And I know we've been talking about password lists, so we might just say your, I guess things move this way, but do do you recommend password managers? Is there anything specific you would recommend for small and medium businesses? That was kind of a big question people had at the tech fair. Yes. Thanks for coming <laughs> to this podcast.
2: <laughs> Thank yeah. you very much. So, ditto, we're done. Yeah, you know, I, I, the, the answer is yes. I I recently got a new phone and I was doing my transition from my old phone to the new phone. And as I was going through it, I was like, wow, I've got a lot of MFA out there, which is a good thing. But but if I didn't have my password manager, and just for kind of additional context, is I, I think at at 20 some MFA's later, I was like, wow, this is kind of a pain in the. Anyways, I have way more passwords than I have MFA's. The MFA's are on the stuff that I care about, which is all the good stuff, my my work, my personal my emails, my credit cards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I have so many passwords and I do try to do the whole use only a unique password for every individual site. I don't know how you do that without a password manager. There are pluses and minuses and I'll let Nate expand on it again, but some of the things are going to be a lot less robust. I think we did a password manager podcast a, a year or two ago already, but when you got into it, one of the big things that comes up is should I use the password manager in my browser? And and we said it's the least secure, but it's way better than using winter 2023 exclamation point on all your sites. So (laughs) I I would do something is better than nothing. There are a lot of good ones, especially I, I like to kind of do this for a personal individual. For your own personal, there are tools out there that are not you know pay like LastPass has one and, and we can get into the last pass stuff in, in a bit but there are tools out there that are available for you and, and using them is better than winging it or using I, in theory a notebook is super secure because it's in your house but it doesn't go t- with you everywhere you do and go
1: yeah it's this it's just a giant risk conversation right is you have the notebook what happens if you have a house fire right it's gone or you went um, you
2: went somewhere you're on vacation whatever
1: Yep, now you can't access any of your websites, right? I recently had a a death on the family extended. We can get into anything because that person withheld all that and we spent months trying to deal with the outcome of that, right? I have a password manager. It has emergency access. After a a, a grace period, just in case my wife's account does get compromised, then it'll automatically grant access to my password vault and then she can just continue dealing on with whatever stuff that she needs in case i'm gone right is there's a lot of benefits that you can tie into this now the one common concern is if all my passwords are on some third-party service do i run the risk of them being compromised and gaining access to all my passwords yes (laughs) right I, i won't disregard that they put a lot of effort into encrypting those and everything like that we've seen password managers in the past get compromised they tend to not to lose the actual passwords themselves. It's more of an encrypted vault that someone then has to go spend significant time cracking. If you just rotate your passwords in that, you're, you're safe again. Right. Um, the, the there's remote, plenty of statistics out there and they all range a little bit de- depending on their surveys, but most of them tend to land between an average person has 100 to 250 different accounts that they manage online. I just pulled up my own personal password manager. I have 289 today. I don't know any of those passwords because they're all completely randomly generated. I only have my one main password to log into my password manager, strong multi-factor authentication to try and get into that. So the risk of having a unique password on every website greatly diminishes the risk Because what happens if someone gets into your email, it's likely a shared password with your bank or whatever it is, and they can quickly navigate. Which leads me to just one quick final thought about password managers and just a little hint of info. Please make sure that the strongest things that you put protection around are your email and your financial institutions. Because if they get into your email, they can just initiate password resets to any other application. Because that's the central repository for all your accounts, so um, protect those as much as you can.
2: So yeah, and I, again, I think Nate covered that extremely well. The one thing that I would add on to him too is, is he had mentioned the like the comment of, well, then you just go reset it, and it sounds like an unsurmountable thing when you throw out 200 plus passwords you got to do. But the actual, actually, the password managers do a very nice job of helping you with the resetting process. They'll take you to the right site. 90 per plus percent of the time they'll take you right to where you need to go they'll fill in your old password for you prompt you for a new one they're extremely well done they have done a really nice job with the password managers and they aren't nearly as scary as they seem to be it's really not that much work
1: yeah and and for those that are still concerned about some type of third-party off-site in the cloud there are on-premise password managers as well that you can use if you still want to manage that you have to do a couple extra hoops to be able to use that on other devices but they've already thought of that concern as well so So we're gonna
0: we're gonna zoom out a little bit because we've been talking um very detailed about each of these you know cybersecurity cores and we had a few questions about a little bit more like business side so i'm gonna just ask all three of these because i feel like they kind of fit together We had a lot of questions about budget when it comes to these cybersecurity cores. What is the recommended budget that you would expect to spend on this, which is a hard question to answer? How do you justify these things in your budget? And then how do you break that down for your C-levels? I know that was a lot, but...
1: Yeah, you're asking two security guys, so 100% of the company revenue (laughs) needs to be dedicated to security. Exactly.
0: Perfect. Yes.
2: (laughs) Yeah I think that the, where the the answer seems like it would be simple is know your audience so for example our CEO is very security conscious and, and rightfully so right we 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 got a big responsibility and so forth but he's with us so when we we come to him and we're adamant about something and we 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 show the value of why we need to do it he's very accepting to it it means we don't have the ability to just say we want anything and everything and he's going to sign off on it but but he is very receptive so for us at, at CIT it is pretty easy to kind of move things along as long as we can make our case for it. If you look at, you can go out and search, Google will help you. You can go say, what does it look like for my industry? And you'll find numbers. A lot of the times you'll find the numbers tend to go all over the place. And I just had the biggest lightning strike right next to me. So if if I go offline here in a second, I apologize. Um, But in my opinion, that varies so much because there are a lot of nuances that go with companies, right? It's big size, location, et cetera, et cetera. And so. Ultimately, the answer for me is going to largely depend on what your appetite is, and it's also going to depend on your industry, right? So if you're in healthcare, finance, those kinds of things, you're going to have requirements, and you really, unfortunately, don't have a lot of wiggle room on them. You will work with other customers I will say, if you don't do X, you can't have Y. So if I don't invest in my EDR, I may not get this agreement, in which case you can kind of look at it and go, well, gosh, I'm going to spend $2,000 on this product, but I'm going to get a $500,000 agreement out of it that's worth it. Move forward. It's a pretty easy conversation. Now, it it could be a lot more complicated than that too. But again, those risks conversations are how I would typically start to approach it and start looking at it. Most ransomware attacks you're looking at in the SMB market, which is small and medium size, you're looking at about $250,000 ransom or event and you're offline for two weeks. So now you start to build your budget around it and say, knowing that it costs that much, how can I put in tools that start to mitigate that risk without and coming back. So if I came back with something that ended up being $200,000 to mitigate the risk and I'm saving 50 grand, I'll probably just skip it and go, I can accept that risk for now. And then the last piece that I would put on there and I'll let Nate take over is once you start building your budget and it's in there, people start to go, okay, he's serious. He isn't letting this go. If you have a physical budget and it's in there month after month and you're talking about it and you're saying this is why, and here's what I'm fixing on a risk perspective, things will move forward. Yeah, that's there's a couple of
1: low-hanging fruit items that just simply make sense, right? Is uh, when Todd's talking about these big numbers for critical security events, um, or even things like you go take a look at business email compromises, right? Account takeovers. When you do those, take a look at some of the statistics of what is it actually, or sorry, what's the likelihood that they actually happen? It's all over the place, right? These are the n- number one threats is system intrusion, their human interaction. So you have statistics to back you up on that and they often are the initial attack vector to these critical security incidents. The tools are actually pretty dang cheap to be able to protect against those. So yes, let's say you're talking about some type of endpoint detection or response. It may be a th- couple thousand dollars a-, a year, right? Depending on the size of your organization, obviously. But how many years of protection can that give you if we know that this is the number one, number two, number three threat across the organization? You may be able to afford 10 years of protection simply for the cost of one security incident. And we already know that these are the critical things. Therefore, it's an easy business justification to try and put those in place. Multi-factor. Yes, there are free solutions. You know, We see this with Microsoft just saying... It's not required because it's so critical that you have it. There are other paid solutions that have more bells and whistles. You know, we we spend a significant amount of money on our identity and access management solution. However, we see the value because the, the criticality of an account compromise or access into these systems far outweighs the risk of not putting it into play. So, it, again, the budget and everything is completely subjective to your industry and everything like that, you know, especially if you're non-regulated versus regulated. Um, but I guess the last thing I would say is there are actually frameworks to help calculate some of this stuff. So if you're not familiar with things like the FAIR, um, you know, risk matrix or, you know, reporting structure, there are ones out there such as FAIR that can help you out and make those uh, qual quantitative justifications.
2: Yeah, I, I think it was that the the FTC had generated some guidelines on what people should expect as they were rolling out some of their stuff and they built they helped build budgets too. So those things do exist and you can go, go search for those and kind of get an idea of what ballpark numbers look like, um, but, but that'll help. And then last but not least, there are partners out there that will help you build the budget and go, okay, well, let's look at the overall budget of who you are, where you are in your maturity level and where you're going. And we can help build that out and then help if you need it, not everybody does, but sometimes people help need somebody to come in and just be that buffer between the person that's asking for the money and the people that are saying yes or no to to spending it. So partners can help you with that piece as well.
1: Remote. I think, sorry, the one last thing I'd add on to this, just to Ariel, just to help tie your last question together is how do you break down for your C levels or justify to them? Is for that initiative, how does it drive the business forward, right? Is Even today, I was talking to Todd about some type of security initiative and going, how do I benefit from that, right? And what's the cost? What's the labor associated? Taking those into consideration, are there alternatives that we have considered to maybe save those expenses, right? Having those conversations of saying, we've considered and exhausted all efforts to mitigate this risk or, you know, transfer this risk or something along those lines. The only viable way that I see this moving forward and mitigating is to implement this. And if you have those numbers backed up, again, the business wants to keep moving. They want to keep making money, but they also want to mitigate risk because that costs money on the back end as well. So
0: I think my camera professor, Todd or Nate, who said, like, it, it's important to know your audience and kind of know where they're coming from when you have these conversations i um, totally
1: take credit for that because I was yeah, totally.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so my very last question is: how how often are you having these conversations? How how often should you revisit these cyber
2: policies? It depends. I got to work it in. You knew it was coming. It was just a matter of time. It, it really does depend if you have it written down in one of your other policies. So for example, in HIPAA, in the finance world, et cetera, they say what they do, and then you go through the audit process and proving you do what you say. And in most of those, they typically say they review them at quote unquote, at least annually. So if you document somewhere that it's at least annually, then you better do it at least annually. I generally recommend at least annually as kind of a baseline. You should be doing most things at least that frequently. Things do change enough that you should be doing it, right? We talked about MFA. We've been screaming it from the top of the mountain for seven years and it's changed, right? So we got into that mm-hmm. fish resistant conversation because it's changing. You need to revisit your policies and say, has, has what's happened in the world, our new to technology, our, our mm-hmm. different change of our risk appetite has changed. Do I need to make adjustments to my policy? And and then of course, did I miss anything the previous time?
1: Like every day policy. <laughs> um, so I guess whenever something comes up, right, is if you have a policy uh, here at CIT, we've had these in the past where, um, yes, let's say the quarterly or sorry, not the quarterly, the annual cadence is we at a minimum needs to do this annually. If there's an issue that comes up and it something that you didn't account for in one of your policies, update remote it, communicate it. <laughs> Right, make sure that it's associated into the the business moving forward. So we have issues every single day. I'm going to say daily on your lunch break, just look at them and update them. Right, but I
2: love it. <laughs> annually is a good start. So. It is, and I mean there are certain things that businesses do just by nature that causes it to happen. So for example, we do like an incident response plan and we review that at least yearly. And what Typically ends up happening is we just had a conversation earlier today, where someone was talking about, well, what happens if I implement an EDR and I get an alert, what does that look like? Well, if that's not in your incident response plan, it should be. So those kinds of the things are things that change pretty regularly and you just need to be on top of it and continue to revisit and make sure you're, you're doing all your due diligence.
0: Perfect. Well, we're definitely revisiting this topic. We got some more questions. We couldn't fit it all in. So we'll be back next week. There were more questions. Thank you, Todd and Nate, for joining us today. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. It's how we know that you are interested in these topics. If you have a question or a topic you'd like us to discuss, reach out to us at info at cit-net.com or head on to our website, cit-net.com slash podcast. And we'll be back next week with an all-new episode